0: Well, I'm sure you've heard it said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And if you haven't before now, you just did. Um, It's a phrase that's common in times of conflict, uh, particularly war. It's a phrase phrase that described the position held by the United States and Britain during World War II um, in regard to the Soviet Union. Uh, Neither the United States or Britain wanted to work alongside Stalin, Uh, they weren't keen about it at all, but both understood that cooperation with him um, would be necessary to defeat Hitler. And You may be wondering why I'm starting there, and it's because over the next two weeks and really beyond, we're going to see this, uh, we're going to see a picture of this uh, in, in our study Um, Because the scribes and the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are all going to join forces and they're going to seek to bring Jesus down. Um, And if we were uh, to describe this group as a whole using some contemporary language or contemporary um, descriptors, we would say that this group contained both ruling elders and teaching elders. Uh, it contained right-wing political nationalists and left-wing theological and social progressives, uh, as well as law-abiding, uh, Bible-believing church-attending ad- evangelicals. And so you can imagine when you get all that, those different groups uh, in one room, they weren't going to get along. Uh, and They decided they were going to put their dislike for one another aside, so that they could could join forces and work on one common goal, which was, again, to not just silence Jesus, but to eradicate Him altogether. Their goal was to to destroy Him, because His message and His mission, um, in His message and mission, He had been... Found to be an equal opportunity offender and disruptor, Uh, he shared the wealth as far as that was concerned. And this week we're going to see the attack comes from uh, the scribes and Pharisees, chief priests and elders, and and next week we're going to see, when Aaron comes to preach, we're going to see the attack comes from the Sadducees. Uh, Mark even tells us that tonight there's a little help from the Herodians. Again, so... They're all in it together. And the passage tonight in verses nineteen to twenty-six is very simple. There are really only two points. There's a question and there's an answer. Uh, but for a spoiler alert, the question is found in verse twenty-two: Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And the answer isn't found in verse twenty-five: Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and the things that are God's, uh, or the, uh, and to God the things that are God's. And this question is very applicable to us today, and I'm grateful that we have prov- providentially come to this text uh, at a time that we are. Uh, I believe it's going to help us to uh, explain why and how we've approached all that's gone on in the last two years the way we have, and will prepare us for whatever, whatever lies ahead, right? Um, so as is our custom, let's go to the Word in prayer before we begin. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, would you grant us power to the preaching of your Word, would you grant all of us spiritual eyes and ears to, to hear and to see what we need to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding Christ and His gospel? We'd ask that you would awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us. As always, would your spirit refresh us and encourage us and comfort us? I pray that you would grant me grace, that you would fill me with your spirit, that I might um, appropriately fulfill this task to which you've called me and to which I am unfit for. Um, Father, my desire is to do something good for you and for your church this evening, so may that be so. Uh, bless our time together, and, for, and it's, in, uh, or it's for Christ's sake and for our church's sake that I pray these things. Uh, amen and amen. Well, in his article entitled, The Civil Magistrate, in the September 21st issue of Table Talk Magazine, uh, Harry Reader wrote the following. He said, there are three foundational institutions that God has divinely designed and embedded in creation, the fall, and redemption. The foundational institution of creation is the family. The foundational institution in response to the fall is the state. And the foundational institution in light of redemption is the church. These foundational institutions of the family and creation, the state and the fall, and the church and redemption are independent, or interdependent, parallel, and reciprocal, but not identical or hierarchical. The state is not the family or the church, and likewise, the church and the family are not the state. He goes on to say, within the family and the church, we are nurtured and discipled to trust Christ alone for our salvation and to follow Christ intentionally, being directed by his word and empowered by his spirit while desiring to glorify God and enjoy him in all of life. The state, through the civil magistrate, is to provide this secure environment for citizens to live freely within their families and churches. Of course, as Christians, we live in all three institutions. These divinely ordained institutions, he says, are to stay in their lane. But we move from lane to lane as required by challenges, opportunities, relationships, and occasions in life. Therefore, it would be important for us to know, to understand what the Bible tells us about our relationship to the state through the civil magistrate. And in his commentary on Luke, Philip Rikens says the best place to start to understand that relationship is with one of the most famous things Jesus ever said, and it's right behind me. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. But this is an answer to a question. And if we're going to understand the answer, we have to understand the question. So we need to begin with the question. Jesus has just finished telling his... If you haven't been with us, Jesus has just finished telling his story regarding the tenants. And as I mentioned last week, everyone that was listening, whether they were a part of the religious establishment or just a part of the crowd that was listening, and they all knew what he was talking about and to whom he was talking. There was no question. And if we, if we have a question or if we doubt that, all we have to do is look at verse 19. Because Luke says... Exactly that. They all knew. And as you can imagine, the scribes and the Pharisees did not like what they heard at all. And so they decided it was... And they wanted, they were so furious at that moment that they wanted to grab him and do away with him. They didn't want any time to elapse. They wanted to do it at that very moment. They wanted to destroy him. And they wanted to lay to rest... All of his talk about the kingdom. They didn't want to hear any more about it because he had told them very clearly that they were not citizens of the kingdom. Actually, they were enemies of his kingdom. And most importantly, they were enemies of him because he was the king. And his enemies, all that they held dear the earthly kingdom, the earthly city, the earthly temple. And their rights and privileges and even their positions of prominence within that realm would all be destroyed. And they themselves would be crushed by and because of His kingdom and His kingdom alone would stand in the end. And rather, they've they've been hearing this, and rather than throw themselves at the mercy of the King, rather than... uh, submit to His rule and reign, rather than repent of their sin and, and turn to faith in Him, they grew more angry day after day to the point that they desired to kill Him. And the choice couldn't have been more clear. The, tru- the truth had been right before them for, for, for years, really. Right? We've heard it over and over, accept Him or re- reject Him before him or against him, follow him or oppose him. And they chose the latter in every case, no matter how the question was phrased. It was a blatant refusal to embrace the truth that had been repeatedly placed before them. And as we've said throughout our study, they would be held accountable for the choice they had made. There was no way that they were going to escape it. They couldn't rely on the excuse that he had been unclear. They couldn't rely upon the excuse that, well, you know, we just don't know any better. They simply chose to stubbornly and blatantly refuse to submit to the truth. And again, they would be held responsible and ultimately ju- be judged for their rejection of him. And brothers and sisters, we need to even pause before we get any further and simply ask the natural question, what are you, what am I, what are we doing with the truth that is laid before us week after week after week regarding the good news of the gospel and the good news of the kingdom? What are we doing with it? Do we get angry and bitter and grow more stubborn and rebellious, or do we respond in repentance and faith? Do we throw ourselves upon the mercy of the King? Do we submit to His rule and reign? Do we rest in His grace and in His mercy? Have you accepted or rejected the truth? Are you for or against Jesus this evening? Are you a friend or an enemy of His? Are you following Him? Or are you opposing him rebelliously? Questions we should always ask. Well, the only thing that kept them, the scribes and the Pharisees at that time, or the chief priests, from grabbing him in that moment was their fear of the people. Their their concern for what others thought of them and what they would do was always kind of above everything else. And so they devised a plan in which they could save face. They were going to watch him very carefully, but they weren't just going to sit back and idly by and allow things to unfold. They weren't going to be passive and wait for him to make a mistake. So they embedded, they decided to embed spies into the crowd, into those who were following him, much like the FBI embeds uh, their agents into the mob. And they were to. Uh, Portray themselves as followers of his. So they were to listen, they were to pretend to show interest in everything that he was saying. And, and they would be, but while they were doing that, in the midst of the pretense, they would be listening and watching and waiting for an opportune time to seek a way to lure him into saying something that could be used against him. And we see the plan go into action in verse 21. They find that opportune time and they confront him. But they hide their hostility and they disguised their animosity behind this facade of sincerity and compliments. But we know it was actually insincere rather than sincere because it was all a part of, it was all a part of the plot. Their strategy gave them away. And, and we know that it was... Uh, we know that it was flattery because the things that they were saying, the things that we're going to look at, they, were saying, they would never say behind his back, only to his face. And I can hear, Jesus, we love how you teach and preach. Everything you say, it just, it just resonates within us. You don't simply tell us what we want to hear. You tell us what we need to hear. You don't say one thing to some and another thing to others just to earn their approval. You don't hold back. You're willing to say that which offends others because you you don't care what others think about you. You're willing to say, well, you just give us the unvarnished truth. You give us the Word of God and the Word of God alone. We could listen to you all day. So, can we ask you a question? Is it lawful for us to give a tribute to Caesar or not? And it wasn't really a bad plan when you think about it. I mean, they wanted him gone, but they didn't want to do it themselves out of fear of how people might react. So, they come up with this question that they believe put him in a bind. But the question, and the question revolved around a tribute. It was a a tax given directly to Caesar. And the reality was that the Jews hated this tax because it was really, they felt as though they're paying this tax to Caesar in order to live in their own land. Some people even thought it was a sin because they were giving money to a pagan nation that was ruling over them unjustly. And so the dilemma they believed Jesus faced was this. If he answered yes, he he would be considered a friend of Rome and an enemy of Israel, and therefore he would be considered a traitor, and the people would want to revolt against him. But if he said no, he would be a friend of Israel and an enemy of Rome, and he would be taken before Pilate as a revolutionary and tried for treason. So, for them, it was a win win. Either way, he's removed. Either he loses his popularity or he loses his life. And regardless, right, they can put the last three years behind him or behind them, and he'll just become a distant memory, and he'll just be one more in a long list of those who are trying to overthrow the establishment. Which leads to our second point the answer. The spies did two things that led to their failure. The first is they underestimated Jesus and his ability to perceive their thoughts and know their hearts. In other words, he saw right through the insincerity, he saw right through the flattery, he identified their crafty scheme, and and he knew it was a trap. But not only, did he underestimate, not only did they underestimate Jesus, they overestimated themselves and their ability to, to craft a Jesus-proof question. You see, they thought they had him with the simple yes or no, either or question. But as typically was the case, as Jesus points out, it was much more to it than that. It couldn't be answered simply with a yes or a no. And he did three things. The first thing he does is he... Uh, in his responses he issued a demand he made a demand upon them and he commanded them to show him a denarius a denarius was a a Roman coin It was worth about a day's wage Um, and the fact that they produced one immediately I mean he says give me a denarius I got one right here and so they had at least one maybe several others and by producing them immediately they they reveal that they were regularly participating in and benefiting from the Roman economy. Can we, need, we need to file that right here and hang on to that for a minute, because the second thing he does is he then asks a question, which he often did when faced with a question, and he says, whose likeness and inscription is, is on that coin? And they respond, well, it's, it's Caesar. Right? Caesar's on the coin, and, and whose inscription is on it? Well, it's Caesar's inscription on it. So Caesar's face was on one side and the inscription on the other, which actually pointed to and spoke of his deity or him being a god, was on the other. So therefore, the coin was his. We have to file that over here. Because the third thing he does is he finally, through a command, answers their question. And he says, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In other words, he says we're going to bring these back in. He said your question does not have to, your question is not either or or yes no. The answer is both and. And if you're going to regularly benefit, participate in and benefit in the Roman economy, why wouldn't you pay taxes? Pay your taxes. And then over here he says and if if it's Caesar's coin, why wouldn't you give it back to Caesar? Give it back to Caesar. Pay your taxes. But then he followed with this. At the same time, you need to give God the things that are God's. So in the answer, Jesus says there are things that are Caesar's, and there are things that are God's, and you need to give to each what they are due. You have responsibilities as the dual citizens that you are. You have responsibilities and obligations as citizens of the kingdom of man, and you have responsibilities and obligations as a part of the kingdom of God. And you need to fulfill both. And by answering that way, he does three things in particular. One, he validates, he actually validates the civil magistrate as, or, as an ordained institution of God that rules within the kingdom of man. Secondly, he, he said it was an imperative to rightly fulfill our responsibilities as citizens of the kingdom of man. But then, thirdly, he also said this He said, Our responsibilities as citizens of the kingdom of man are not separate from, but are, in the words of one commentator, a subordinate part of the all embracing obligation. To render to God the things that are God's as citizens of the kingdom of God. In other words, our citizenship in the kingdom of God is primary and takes priority over our citizenship in the kingdom of man. So, when we give to Caesar what is Caesar's and rightfully rightfully fulfill our responsibilities as a part of the kingdom of man... We are giving to God what is God's and rightly fulfilling our responsibilities and obligations as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And so the scribes and chief chief priests, they couldn't argue with that. It was simple and clear, and he, he silences his critics once again. But they weren't going to give up. They're going to go back to the drawing board, and they're going to try again, and we'll see that next week. Now, before we confess our common faith and come to the table together, there's a question obviously that needs to be answered, because the chief priests and the scribes, they come to Jesus and ask about a singular topic. They ask about a tax, but notice Jesus' response is in the plural. He says, there are things. Right? We're, there's more than just this tax that we're talking about. And so we have to ask the question, What things? the obvious question is what things are Caesar's and what things are God's? We need to determine what those are. What, what do we owe the civil magistrate or the state and what do we owe God? What are the responsibilities of being residents and citizens of the kingdom of man and what are our, what are our responsibilities for being a part of the kingdom of God? I want to start first with the things of Caesar. And Scripture gives us four specific responsibilities in which we are instructed in Scripture to fulfill as, kingdom, uh, as citizens of the kingdom of, of, of man. And I'm simply going to list them, um, share, share the Scriptures from which they come. The first is that we are to honor and respect those in authority. We've read already from it tonight. Romans thirteen five says, Pay to all what is owed to them, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And in first Peter chapter two, verse seven, it says, Honor everyone, Peter says, Love the neighbor, love love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the Emperor. Secondly, we're also to pay taxes. To the governing authorities. We've read that in our passage already tonight. But also in Romans thirteen seven, We read it earlier. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Thirdly, we're told to be subject to and obey for the Lord's sake those in authority. Romans 13, 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter again says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And then lastly, of course, we're to pray for those in authority. You hear that from our elders each week. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, of course, there are also three caveats to these responsibilities. One is that we are to obey Unless the laws of the state would cause us to transgress the laws of God, then we must obey God rather than man. Since man's authority is delegated by and subservient to God, Peter makes it very clear in Acts that we are to obey God rather than men. Secondly, we're called to fulfill these things whether the leaders who have been placed above us are Christians or not. Whether they are members of the right political party or not. And whether our tax money is being used in a way we believe it should be or not. Remember Peter's words I read earlier. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You know where Peter was when he wrote that. He was in jail. He had been imprisoned by Nero and would be killed, not for doing evil, but for doing good. And then finally, while Christ validated the civil magistrate, he never called, called His followers to, nor did He ever attempt to turn the state into a Christian state in order to make it easier to fulfill our responsibilities. We're called to fulfill our responsibilities and obligations to the state, all the while resting in our knowledge that the state has been created and instituted by God and is therefore under His sovereign rule. In one, well, when he wrote, under the rule and authority of God, there are two instruments of government in the world. In one kingdom, God rules by the sword. In the other, he rules by the spirit. One kingdom is for the restraint of evil and the promotion of the social order. The other is for the proclamation of the gospel and the spiritual good of the soul. As Christians, we belong to both the state and the church. And in both kingdoms, we have obligations to honor God. Although we believe in the separation of church and state, we do not believe in the separation of God and state. So in the words of Daryl Bach, he said, Jesus rejects an aggressive, nationalistic, revolutionary, zealot-like approach to the question. His kingdom was not designed to lead a revolution to overthrow Rome. Whatever he was teaching... It was not political insubordination. And I'm just going to leave that right there. Second part of the question is, what are the things that are God's? Let me start with these words from Ralph Davis. He says, we talk about responsibility to the state, or we throw around talk about two kingdoms or ramble on about the secular and the sacred, or even raise the difficulties that we may face when these two realms conflict. And when we do, we don't hear Jesus. What does it mean to pay back to God the things that are God's, except to offer Him all that I am and all that I have? Jesus' demand here costs far more than we typically imagine as we sit in front of this verse, it is far more demanding and expensive than we commonly think. And that's because our all-embracing obligation to render to God's what is God's is an obligation to render to God all things because all things are His. His everything, belongs, everything belongs to him as the author and creator and sustainer of all that is. This was Jesus' point when he asked, what is the image on the coin? Because Caesar's image on the coin spoke of his ownership of the coin. And of course, we having been created in the image of God speaks of God's ownership of us. because we are His, He is deserving of our all-encompassing love and devotion. We are to love Him with all of our heart, and with all of our soul, and all, all of our might, for all of our strength. And not only are we owned because we are image bearers of God, we are also owned by Him because we have been redeemed. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of His own Son. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price, the imperishable blood of the Lord Jesus. And when we think about what He has done for us, we understand that God doesn't expect anything. He doesn't expect us to give anything that He hasn't already given. And Christ doesn't expect us to do anything He hasn't already done. He expects our all to be given, because He has given His all for us. So when He says give to God the things that are God's, He's saying we owe Him our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our homes, our families, our friends, our time, our money our possessions, our work, our play, our everything. And that includes giving to Caesar what is Caesar's if and only if it doesn't cause us to sin or forsake that which we owe to the Lord. We should not give what is the Lord's to the state. As Isaac Watts wrote, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. And I don't know about you, but when I think of that, immediately I'm, I'm brought to the reality that I fall short of that command. We all do. We don't give our all. We fail to give God all of the things that are God's, but fortunately for us, right? All that, that, that is all. And the fact that he gave his all, that... that that all was not only to purchase us, but it was on our behalf as well. So His record of giving His all has been credited to us. And because we stand before God as if, having been declared that we have given our all, we are able to then try and, and work and strive toward giving our all without the fear of failing. And that should spur us on. And so the question that we, that we need to, to be asking and to keep in the forefront of our minds is this, so what will we render to God for the sake of Christ who rendered all for us? Let's pray together. Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word that has been preached with faith and love? Would you lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives, that we may practice it in our lives? Bless those who have heard your word preached, and may the seeds sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness for your glory and for the good Um, of your church. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.